Hallelujah. You may, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Let's give the Lord a hand praise for the worship team. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Well, I'm glad to be here with everyone uh, tonight. Super, super grateful to be joining you for uh, these next few days. Um, this is my first time in the beautiful state of Kansas, so I'm doubly grateful for this opportunity. I thank Pastor Zach uh, for inviting me. I also thank Pastor David for allowing me to minister in this beautiful church, and I bring you greetings uh, from my church, Chapel of Change in Los Angeles, a Long Beach, uh, California, home of the Los Angeles Lakers. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I really uh, want to encourage you uh, about these next few days. Uh, I think, I believe uh, that I'll be speaking tomorrow morning, uh, somewhat of the same message of tonight, but the Holy Spirit works in different ways, even if it may be the same message. Uh, and then I'll be speaking on Monday morning and Monday evening and then Tuesday evening. Uh, and I really want to encourage you to uh, come with an expectation. I really want to encourage you to come with an open heart, come with an open mind. When you come uh, before the congregation and you come before the, most importantly, the presence of God in worship and in prayer and in the study of God's word and in testifying, uh, there's always a, a disposition there's always an attitude, a good attitude that you want to come before the Lord in, in order to receive what he has for you. And everybody needs something different. God knows everybody's story. He knows everybody's challenge. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're battling. He knows what you're struggling with, things that you don't tell your friends, things that you don't tell your parents. I, I want to encourage you that God knows. God knows, and I really believe that in these next couple of days, as you come with an open heart, as you come with a heart of expectation, as you come to worship, as you come to hear God's word, I really believe that God is going to speak to you. I really believe that God is going to touch your heart in a, in a special way. I really believe in that God is going to touch your mind. In a special way, some of y'all are got some books you got to read. Some of you guys got some tests you got to take. You need your mind touched. You need your mind touched. So I really believe, I believe, my prayer is that in these next couple of days that God speaks to you in a special way and touches your heart and your mind. Does anybody believe that this evening? Anybody receive that this evening? So I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and tonight as well as tomorrow morning, uh, I want to bring before our meditation and reflection Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 15, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through uh, 15, and I, I come particularly tonight and tomorrow, 
and of course these four days that I'm with you guys, to number one, lift up the name of Jesus. My prayer is that in these next couple of days, you fall in love with Jesus a little bit more. That, that you fall in love with Jesus a little bit more because I believe that as we fall deeper in love with Jesus, we give him more and more of our heart and more and more of our life. And that's my prayer is that, that we fall in love with Jesus as we lift Jesus up. But I also come to share with you a living kind of story or testimony of the power of God in our generation. I come to share with you a living testimony of the power of God in our generation. When people first see me, they could never imagine uh, the darkness that God has lifted me up out of. When people see me today, they could never imagine the brokenness in which God healed me from. They can't imagine that I've come from a drug-infested background, that I come from a gang-infested background, a broken uh, background. In fact, the only hint that you get, the only hint that you'll get that I do come from that type of background is when you learn at the age of 16 years old, regretfully, I was arrested for a gang-related murder. I was tried as an adult, and in the Compton, California courthouse, I was sentenced to life in prison. Not three years, not five years, not 10 years, but life in prison. I know how it feels to be a teenager stuck in a dark place in life. I know how it feels to be a teenager broken in a million little pieces. I know how it feels to be a teenager that has no hope, no dreams, no future. But I also know how it feels to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ as a young man or a young boy. I know how it feels to, to cry out to that name of Jesus and experience the power of God. I know how it feels to serve God as a teenager in the midst of hell and high water and stay faithful to the Lord and experience his restorative power in my life. I know how it feels not to give up, not to throw in the towel. And it's in that spirit that I want to share with you uh, this evening a little bit about my story, but more so the word of God, because I believe that Jesus changes everything. I believe that Jesus changes everything. I got a couple pictures that I'm going to be sharing with you as I share uh, the word of God, but I really want to put into your heart, I really want to put into your heart tonight, Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything everything. Someone say that with me. Jesus changes everything. Say it one more time. Jesus changes everything. I want us to look this evening at Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 15. Let me read this story. It's not a long story, but I believe it's one of the most uh, powerful stories of restoration in the Bible. Luke chapter 7 Verses 11 through 15, when everybody's there, say amen. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bearer. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, this is Jesus, listen to what he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. Should notice what he said. Young man, I say to you, get up. I like the King James Version. Young man, I say, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And I love this last phrase, one of the most powerful pictures of restoration in the Bible. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Tonight, I want us to reflect on this powerful story in the Bible where Jesus encounters this broken family. And picture in your mind with me that Jesus is traveling with his disciples into the city called Nain. And as he enters into the city, he collides head on with this funeral procession. And I want to suggest tonight that when we look at this passage of Scripture, this is an encounter between life and death. What we see in this scripture is, is an encounter between joy and sorrow, between hope and despair. In fact, we see this revival of fresh hope in the midst of a hurting family. When you think about the Bible, one of the major themes of the Bible is restoration, restoration. Uh, when a life cries out to the name of Jesus, if that life stays in the hand of God long enough, eventually the power of God will restore that life back to its original beauty. Eventually the power of God will restore our peace and restore our hope, restore our dignity. Eventually the power of God will and can restore our place in society. Now, in this story, I want us tonight just to reflect upon three, three things in this story, three things. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to weave my testimony uh, into this, this story in the Bible. I'm going to weave my testimony into this story in the Bible. So three things I want us to consider in this story. The first thing is the young man. The young man. Think about this young man for a moment. Jesus encounters this young man, but he's not an ordinary young man. He's not an ordinary young man. He's not a young man going off to high school. He's not a young man going off to another semester in college. No, he is a dead young man. Somehow, we don't know, 
But this young man died before his time. He died before he could ever fulfill his dreams. He presumably died before he could ever be a husband. He died before he could ever kind of presumably have his own family. He died before he grew up. This is a dead young man. And I'm reminded that King Solomon asked the question in his generation in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He said, should we die before our time? Should we die before our time? And of course, the answer should be no. And as I look at this young man, I see a picture of many of the young people in our generation today, particularly uh, in the urban communities of our nation that are dying before their time. We're living in a, in a generation where young people, just like this young man in the Bible, are being carried out of the city in buses. Some are being carried out in shackles. Some are being carried out in hearses. This is the sad reality that many young people are making so many mistakes that it's cutting their life short. I look at this young man. To some degree, he's a picture of many people in our generation, and often uh, he also reminds me of me. Uh, it was the gang life that eventually ripped my family apart. My oldest brother uh, got shot in the face at the age of 15 years old through a gang member's bullet, and he slumped over, and like this young man, we carried him out of the city. And I was a little kid back then, and I, they told me, I swore, that I would never be like them. I would never be a gang member. But uh, regretfully, that's exactly what happened. As I got older into my, like, 11 years old and 12 years old, I started uh, walking like a gang member. I started talking like a gang member. And eventually, I started uh, behaving like a gang member and getting in trouble. And my life went on a downward spiral. By the time I was 14 years old, uh, the devil tried to kill me for the first time when rival gang members opened fire on me from less than 10 feet away. I'll never forget, I was in my brother's lowrider car, and I heard the bullets uh, cry out, pat, 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 and all of a sudden, my left arm flung up, and I yelled out, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. My brother, who was about 19 years old at that time, drove me to the local hospital, and I'll never forget, as he pulled up into the hospital, I can still hear the nurse coming out screaming, you're so young, you're so young. I remember they escorted me through a, to a hospital room, and they put me in a room, and they began to cut off all my clothes because they didn't know if I was going to have to go in surgery or not, and I remember sitting in that hospital room, and about 30 minutes later, I heard a familiar voice crying in the hallway. As that voice got closer and closer to my room, I said to myself, oh, my God, that's my mom. I'm in trouble now. And I put my head down, and I acted like I was asleep because I didn't realize that my oldest brother had died in that same hospital about nine years prior to that day. And so my mom came in with tears in her eyes, and she was just grateful uh, that I was alive. She came in, and she started hugging me, and she started, she started crying. And I'll, I'll never forget, because the sad thing was I did not learn my lesson. 
I stayed in the hospital for a couple months, and my arm was paralyzed because of the bullet. I couldn't lift up my finger. I couldn't lift up my hands. And when they released me from the hospital, I did not heed the warnings of God. And the first thing that I did is I went back to my gang, and I went back to my old friends, and I began to develop a bad attitude. How many of you know that God gives us warnings? God loves us enough to give us warnings after warnings. But as a teenager, I developed an attitude and I had a chip on my shoulder that I wouldn't listen to God. Even though my dad prayed for me, even though my dad tried to save me, even though my dad taught me about Jesus when I was little, when I turned 13 and 14 years old, I would not listen. I went back to the streets and I began to run away from home. Every time I didn't get my way. I would, I would run away from home, and I know how it feels to live on the streets. I know how it feels to live in the park. I know how it feels to live in abandoned homes, and my life was slipping further and further down, and I grew up in the late 80s in Los Angeles, and that was the height of the gang violence during those days. That was the time when gangster rap first came out, and I grew up in this generation that was killing people left and right, and it didn't matter who you were with. If you, if you got caught by your rival gang members, they were shooting everybody up, and it was, that, it was that generation that shaped my attitude, and I got sucked into the gang violence at a young age. I begin to hang out more and more, and I begin to run away from home, and I begin to do little crimes like spray painting on the wall or uh, stealing little things until eventually I found myself arrested for the very last time. In 1992, I was in my, I was in my house, and I come from a family uh, that all my relative, relatives live in one house, my grandma, my aunts, and my 39 cousins. And I remember I was in my room, and I heard a knock on my door, and I thought it was my grandma waking me up to go to school, but it wasn't. Instead, it was the sheriff's department, and they broke down the door, and they put their gun to my head, and they said, get down, get down, and I got down on my knees, and they, they handcuffed me. I was 16 years old at this time, and they jerked me up, and they began to escort me through the living room, and that was one of the most shameful mornings of my life because in my living room was half my family, and as I walked through the living room, I can still hear my grandma, the one who helped raise me, the one who rubbed Vicks Vapor Rug on my chest when I didn't feel good, I can still hear her scream out to day. What did you do? What did you do? I put my head down and I was so full of shame they put me to a cop car that was double parked in the, in, in the driveway and about 10 minutes later the detective came and he drove me off. I was 16 years old arrested for one murder and one attempted murder. I was slipping deeper into darkness because of my sin and my rebellion. For the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and that is good for a 16-year-old as it is for a 60-year-old. I remember the detective driving me off, and I began to look at the people going to work or to school, and the detective turned around, and he slapped me with his words. He said, you better take a good look at them streets, boy, because you'll never see them again. Rebelliously, I didn't want to let nobody tell me what to do, so I stared deeper into society, and I looked at the people go to work or to school, and for them, it was the start of another normal day, but for me, it was the beginning of the end. 
They took me to the police department. They booked me. They shipped me to juvenile hall. They put me in a room. I still didn't wake up. I began to get into trouble until at the age of 17 years old, they transferred me from juvenile hall to the Los Angeles County Jail at the age of 17 years old. And they had told me before that the Los Angeles County Jail was the worst of the worst, that if you could survive the L.A. County Jail, you could survive any prison. So I remember I was 17 years old, but I looked like I was 13. They escorted me into the county jail, and my nightmares were coming true right before my eyes. I remember they put me in a one-man cell in a dark tier or hallway. And this one-man cell was so small, I can touch both of the sides with my hands. And there was rats uh, uh, running around. And I was on a hallway with the worst juveniles of Los Angeles. And people were coming back uh, from court with double life sentences, 25 years to life sentence, 15 years to life sentence. But you never really feel that pain until it happens to you. The day came when it was my turn. And they escorted me to the Compton Courthouse, and in a room full of people with my dad towards the front, the judge hit her hammer, little hammer, and she said, Mr. Worth, I sentence you to life in prison. And all of a sudden, this great weight began to come upon me, and I didn't say nothing, but I stood back, and a gentleman in his 40s stepped forward, and the judge sentenced him to three years, and this guy broke down in tears. He began to cry. And I remember standing next to him. I didn't say nothing to him. But inside me, I was screaming at this guy, why are you crying for three years? Didn't you just see what happened to me? Why are you crying? And I couldn't understand his pain. But soon I would. They took me back to the L.A. County Jail. I'll never forget, they put me back in that one-man cell. I was 17 years old at that time, and I went to sit on my bed. And I was sitting on my bed like this, and my face was pressed against my knees. And it felt like a cloud of depression was crushing me. It felt like the devil was laughing at me. It felt like the world was breaking me apart as my face was pressed against my knees. I was losing hope. I was losing I was losing peace. I was losing my mind, and the, the world had kicked me out, and it felt like the devil was laughing at me. And you know what? If you would have opened the prison door, I would have ran to church. If you would have opened that prison door, I would have ran to school. I would have I ran like home. I would have been the first one home. But for me, at that moment, it was naturally too late. It was too late. I fell for the lie of the streets, which ultimately is a lie of the devil. And there's nothing worse than a teenager full of dreams and aspirations slammed down in a one-man cell, condemned to die a slow death in prison. This leads me to my second reflection this evening in, back in the story of the Bible. Not only do I want us to think of the young man, but I also want us to think a little bit about the mother. I want us to think about the mother, because it's interesting to me back in the story that 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 the only person the Bible identifies is the mother. The only person the Bible identifies in the story or in the crowd that was with the young man is the mother. It wasn't his best friend. It wasn't his girlfriend. When the smoke had cleared, all the Bible identifies in the crowd with the dead young man is the mother. I want us to think about her for a second because this is not a normal mother. 
This is not a normal mother. This is a gritty type of mother. She's a strong mother. She's a mother, the Bible says or teaches, was a widow. That means she has felt the sting of death before. Now she had to watch as her son uh, traveled the same road of death that her father or his father traveled. And I want us to think about something else. Notice why Jesus stopped in the story. Notice why Jesus intervened. It wasn't because of the boy. Jesus did not stop because of the boy. Jesus did not stop because of the crowd. No. Jesus stopped because of the mother. The Bible says when Jesus saw the mother, he had compassion on her. And I think about it. I know I'm alive because I had a praying parent over my life. I know many of us today are alive, not because we're strong, not because we're smart, but we had, whether it was a mother or a father or a grandmother, praying for us, and because of their prayers, we are still alive today. And so not only do I want to encourage the young people today, but I also come to encourage the parents today, the grandparents today, don't ever give up praying for your rebellious child. Don't ever give up praying for the one that have walked away from the church or walked away from their calling. Keep praying because God is hearing your prayers. It wasn't about till about 10 years after my incarceration I learned what my dad did after my arrest. The morning I got arrested, before they raided my house, my dad was driving back from working graveyard shift and the police pulled him over uh, at the corner and after they pulled him over he thought he was getting a ticket but instead they said they were looking for his son for murder and after they went and arrested me my dad told me 10 years after I was incarcerated he told me he said after they arrested me he went to his room and he got down on his face and he cried out to God Lord spare my boy Lord, spare my boy. He cried out to God on behalf of me, and I don't know how to explain it, but somehow God heard the prayer of a parent. God, somehow God heard the prayer of a parent, and I'm here today. Uh, I'm here today chiefly because my dad did not give up on me. The last thing I want to share in this story is what I want us to think about is the compassion of Christ. Not only do I want us to think about the young man, not only do I want us to think about the, the mother, but I want us to think about the compassion of Christ. Listen to this in verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus was touched by her tears. That word compassion means to love tenderly. It means to have mercy. It means to be full of eager yearning. It means to explode one's goodness onto somebody. And when you think about the ministry of Jesus, what, I'm, what, I, what, what I love Jesus about is that he unveiled the compassionate heart of the Father all throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus fed the poor. He raised the dead. He healed the sick out of the compassion that he had for you and I. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The compassion of God teaches us that God is not just uh, uh, 
willing to help us or able to help us, but he's willing. God is not just able to deliver us, but he's willing. Most of us don't have a problem with God's ableness. We sing songs about God's omnipotence, but where a lot of us get off the bus is of his willingness. And my story, and even more so, the Bible teaches that God is not just able to save you, but he's willing to save you. He's willing to deliver you. He's willing to help you. He's willing to restore you if we just call upon his mighty name. I was sitting in that one-man cell in the Los Angeles County Jail, and my face was pressed against my knee, and I began to regret every time I didn't go home. I began to regret every time I didn't listen to my dad. I began to regret every time I didn't go to school. My dad tried to save me. He put me in a Christian school. One of the things I hardly say in my story when I share my story across the nation is that I was actually in a Christian school uh, the semester before I got arrested because my dad was trying to save me. And I remember sitting there with my face pressed against my knees and my life was over, but I heard a noise in the hallway and I, I got up and I put my face against the bars and I looked down the hallway, and it was, a, it was an elderly man passing out Christian literature. He was going to sell to sell. And I thank God for men and women who are not afraid of the darkness, particularly the prison darkness, that are, and are willing to give the gospel to those that are in prison. Because I remember as I stood there, I didn't want to talk to nobody. I was mad at the world. But this old man, he barged into my darkness. He came to my prison door, and so I got up, and I said to myself, I'm going to drop the bomb on this guy. I got up, and I said, Mr., I just got sentenced to life in prison. What in the world can you do for me? What can you do for me? And this old man didn't budge. He did something so radical that moment that I'll never forget. He had the courage to reach through the darkness of my bars, and he grabbed my hand, and he said a quiet yet powerful prayer over my life in the name of Jesus. He prayed for me right there. And I like to believe that that was the compassion of Christ exploding in my life in my darkest moment. I like to believe that that was the compassion of God overlooking my shame and, and saving me in that moment. I'll never forget, this old man walked away, and I, and, I, and I don't remember seeing him again. But it was about two days later, I woke up in the L.A. County Jail, and God gave me a realization. And I say this to everybody, but particularly to the young people. God told me, he put it in my heart in the L.A. County Jail, about to start a prison life sentence. He said, Brian... Sooner or later, you're going to want to serve me unless you die first. He gave me this realization. He said, Brian, one day you're going to be 70 years old. You're going to be gray hair, old wrinkle, walking around the prison yard. And one day you're going to look up to heaven. You're going to say, man, I wish I would have served you when I was younger. The Lord gave me that revelation, realization in the L.A. County Jail. You know what? I decided not to wait. I said, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to let the next man wait, but I'm not going to wait. I got down on my knees in the Los Angeles County Jail at the age of 17 years old, and I cried out to the God that my dad taught me about when I was little. 
I cried out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I cried out to Jesus in the darkest moment of my life. And I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to explain it to you. But what I do know is somehow God heard the broken prayer of a teenage boy. He heard my prayer that day. I remember getting up off my knees. And I looked around. And you know what had changed? Nothing. It was still dark. It was still gloomy. The judge didn't pop up and say, you know what? It's time for you to go home now. Everything is okay. No, nothing outwardly changed. But guess what? Something changed on the inside. Something changed on the inside where God sparked a revolution in my heart on the inside at the age of 17 years old, and he gave me a passion for him. He gave me a love for him, and I started to read my Bible. I started to pray. I started to serve the Lord. I started to go to church. I, I didn't know how to serve him. I just took one step at a time. I just took one step at a time. I took one step at a time, and the Bible teaches if you draw close to God, he'll draw close to you. And every time I took one step for God, he gave me the strength to take another step. And slowly but surely, God began to transform my life by the power of his word and the power of his spirit. He began to give me a love for others. He began to transform the way I thought. He began to give me a courage to serve him in the midst of hyenas and in the midst of vultures. And God gave me the strength to get up every day and to serve him with my life. And slowly but surely, as I served the Lord, he began to restore my life. Little by little, five years passed by, nine years passed by, and people were telling me, Brian, you're never going to go home. You got a life sentence. What, what are you doing reading your Bible? You're never going to go home. What are you doing getting your high school equivalency uh, certificate? You're never going to go home. And I had to ignore the negativity and follow after Jesus. One step at a time. Following God in the midst of darkness. And the Lord led me every step of the way. He began to restore my life. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord messed around and gave me a vision. He gave me a vision. The Lord put it upon my heart. He said, Brian, if you serve me and don't give up, eventually I'm going to set you free from this prison life sentence to impact the world with the gospel. He gave me a vision as a teenager. And I remember writing down the vision on paper. And I remember putting it in my pocket. I remember praying over the vision. I remember preparing for the vision. I remember crying over the vision. And the Lord stayed faithful every step of the way. 2002, I went up for the parole board for the very first time. And they were all telling me nothing's going to happen. I went up in front of the parole board with nothing but the promise of God. And I sat there before the parole board. And by the grace of God, by the end of the meeting, they looked at me and they said, Brian, uh, we want you to know that we consider you suitable for parole and we're giving you a release date today. In 2002, I became the youngest inmate in California history to receive a release date. And I wish I can say that that was the end of my struggle, but it wasn't. For five years, 
The California governors played ping pong with my life. For five years, the California governors reversed my, re my release date. They blocked my release. Every year, the parole board will give me a release date. The California governors will step in and say, no, Brian grew up in gangs. He grew up in prison. He's still a threat to society. I block his release for five straight years. And I remember the last time the governors re reversed my parole dates, it was the first time I was confused at what God was doing in my life. It was the first time I was confused. I didn't know what God was doing. I was used to God spoiling me. I was used to God uh, showing me his power, but it was the first time it felt like God was a thousand miles away. What do you do when you don't know what to do? I'll never forget. I went into the chapel, and I got down on my knees at the altar, and I made a declaration that day. At that time, I was 20. Uh, I, at that time, I was like 31 years old, and I told God, I said, God, it doesn't matter no more. I'm going to serve you whether I go home or whether I die in prison. It doesn't matter no more. And I laid my dreams at the altar of God. I laid my dreams at the altar of God, and I said, God, I'm going to serve you. Whether they put me in a hole or they let me go, I'm still going to serve you. And I made this commitment to God, and I'm here to declare a year later, by the mercy of God, the Lord God Almighty had a sit-down meeting with the then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Anybody remember him, a.k.a. the Terminator? And I don't know what God told Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I like to believe he told him what he told Moses 4,000 years ago, let my people go. In 2008, God fulfilled his word and released me from prison and restored me back to my daddy. He gave me back to my family. And I've been out of prison now for 13 years, and the Lord is still unfolding his will, still being faithful to his will, being faithful to his promise. And I want to encourage you today, no matter what you're going through, I want to encourage you, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Serve him with all your heart. God wants to use you in our generation. And I really believe if I can serve the Lord in the midst of hyenas, if I can serve the Lord in the midst of lions and vultures, you could serve the Lord in the midst of this beautiful environment that we have. I know you got trials and struggles, but with the power of God, I believe that you could remain faithful to God. So I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you to continue to follow after the Lord. The story that you heard this evening, not the story of a 16-year-old who endured 16 years in prison, but it is the story of a mighty God who stayed faithful to his word in our generation. And this same God wants to use you. He wants to use your dreams. He wants to use your vision. He wants to give you power to live for him all the days of your life. I want to call the worship team back up this evening. And I want to invite us to sing this song together. I want to encourage us, if you're able to stand to your feet, and what we're going to do as we close out this song we're going to have this closing song, and then I'm going to come out back and close with a blessing. But during this song, during this song, if anyone needs prayer, I'm going to just stand right here. If you need prayer, I'm going to invite you to come, and I'll just pray for you. I'll put on my mask if you're comfortable or comfortable with that. Pastor Terry will be here at the altar. 
to provide prayer for anybody who needs prayer. If you don't need prayer, I want to invite you to worship the Lord through this song this evening. And after the song, I'll come out and close with a blessing. But if you need prayer, I'm going to be at the altar available to pray for anybody. Let us worship the Lord. Lord of my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope with no place to begin, your love made a way to let mercy come in, when death was arrested and my life began, ash was redeemed only
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's give the Lord another hand. Praise. Before, before I bless out this evening, I want to encourage you. If you know anybody who's discouraged, if you know anybody who is depressed, if you know anybody who needs fresh hope, I'm going to be sharing the same message tomorrow morning right here. I believe it's 1030. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to text somebody tonight. Text somebody. It don't take much to text somebody. Just tell them. You know somebody's discouraged, challenged. You know somebody who has a big obstacle in front of them. They need their faith strengthened. Text somebody. Say, hey, get to, I want to invite you to McPherson Free Methodist Church, 1030, tomorrow morning. Let God use you to spread the love, spread the faith, spread the hope. Amen? And I want to bless you guys for coming out tonight. If you could, I would ask you to lift up your hands unto the Lord, and we'll bless you with a dismissal. In the name of the Father who loves you with an endless love, in the name of the Son who died that you could be saved, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, who strengthens your spirit, strengthens your mind, and strengthens your body for the assignment that God has upon your life. May you go tonight with the protection and the blessing of the Lord. In Jesus' name, God bless you. God bless you. Go in peace.